Welcome to Advance with MUSE Health. I'm your host, Erin Spain. This show's mission is to help you find ways to preserve and optimize your health and get the care you need to live well. Head and neck cancers are typically caused by tobacco and alcohol use and the human papillomavirus. And while there are many new treatments for these cancers, survival outcomes are poor, especially among Black Americans. Here at MUSE Health, a team of specialists are trying to catch this cancer earlier and offer more cutting-edge treatments for patients. Here with details is Dr. Evan Grayboyce, a head and neck oncologic surgeon and director of survivorship and cancer outcomes research at the Hollings Cancer Center here at MUSE Health. Welcome to the show, Dr. Grayboyce. Hi, great to be here. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Erin. Well, I'd love to talk about some examples of head and neck cancer. Tell me, what are some common head and neck cancers that you see in patients that come to see you for treatment? Head and neck cancer probably isn't appropriately named since it's a little bit confusing. So often what we start by saying is what head and neck cancer is not. So it's not the spine, it's not the brain, it's not teeth, it's not the esophagus. Most of the cancers we take care of are inside the mouth and throat. And so they come from the lining of the tissue inside the to the upper air digestive tract. So inside the jawbone, inside the back part of the throat, the tonsils, the back part of the tongue, the voice box. Those are predominantly the cancers we see. There are a number of other types of cancers that we also see in our clinics. So in South Carolina, especially, we see lots of patients with skin cancers. So from sun exposure, people can also get cancers that arise from the salivary glands. So these glands are located in front of the ear. They're called the parotid gland or underneath the jawbone, the submandibular gland. And often we'll also see patients sometimes who have melanoma as another type of skin cancer that we see. So they're very, I think, different in their presentation, but all occur in sort of cosmetically and functionally critical areas of the face and throat. This is your face. This is your neck. This is your voice box. I mean, these cancers really impact patients. Can you tell me about that? The signs of head and neck cancer can be subtle. And so sometimes patients, either through lack of awareness or inability to access care, present at late stages. And so sometimes the early symptoms can be things maybe like voice changing or a sore on the side of the tongue. And depending upon how advanced cancer is, treatments can involve really critical and life-altering and permanent changes to things that are critical for our identity and our social function. So these may be things related to breathing. So sometimes patients have to temporarily breathe through a breathing tube in their neck, a tracheostomy tube. It'll impact their swallowing function. So they may not be able to eat the food that they used to eat or eat as much of it. Sometimes patients have to have their teeth removed as part of cancer. Sometimes their facial structure changes. Cancer may grow into their lower upper jawbone. And we've made tremendous, tremendous progress in our ability to treat these cancers in a way that helps improve survival, decreases the likelihood of cancer coming back and improve outcomes for patients long into survivorship. But I think we also have a long way to go on each of those fronts. Well, and catching this cancer early is so important. And like you said, it can be difficult to catch it early. What are some of the common early signs of head and neck cancer and who is the most at risk? Yeah, so signs are often very nonspecific. And so there are things that during cold season happen all the time. And so some of the clues that we use to figure out whether this is concerning or not concerning, I think really depends upon how long the signs or symptoms are there for. So patients might come to see us because they notice a sore on the side of their tongue. And so they may think that they just bit their tongue, but actually the, the sore was there sort of all along. It may be growing. That's why they bit their tongue. Sometimes elderly patients come in and say their dentures don't fit anymore. Or there's like a sore under their dentures. And they think the thought might be like the dentures rubbed the sore, but really the sore itself is, is the cancer and is the reason the dentures don't fit. Our bodies are sort of wired funny. For some reason, the nerve that does sensation to the back part of the throat also goes towards the ear. So sometimes cancer is growing in the back part of the throat can actually show up causing ear pain. So people will say like, oh, my ear hurts. And someone will look in the ear and there'll be nothing wrong there because the cancer is actually in the back part of the throat. You know, for cancers that happen in the voice box, patients may notice a change in their voice if or early on or potentially late, um, have trouble breathing if the cancer occupies the space where they need to breathe. And then especially with cancers related to the human papillomavirus, they start uh, sort of inside the, the tonsils in the back part of the tongue and don't 
don't really have a lot of symptoms there, but they spread to lymph nodes in the neck early. So one of the early important signs um, are these cancers may be a lump in the neck. And so it's very, very common that someone may say like, oh, I was shaving, I noticed a lump on my neck. And that lump on the neck is cancer that started inside the throat and then spread to a lymph node. And you mentioned human papillomavirus there. And at the beginning of the show, we mentioned tobacco and alcohol use. Are those the main causes of these cancers? And what preventative measures can people take to avoid developing these cancers? Yeah, that's a great question. So historically, tobacco and alcohol were the two major reasons people develop head and neck cancer, especially cancers sort of inside the mouth and throat area, what we would have called squamous cell carcinoma. And over the past 20 years, we've seen an epidemic of human papillomavirus-related head and neck cancer. These are predominantly affect males more than females. When we first noticed this trend, it was mostly males in their 40s or 50s who often didn't have really any any smoking or alcohol history. And over time, that, that group has changed a little bit. It's now a little bit more common in elderly males, but still males much more than females, predominantly white males. And from a public health perspective, more people in America each year have human papillomavirus-related cancer inside their oropharynx, so the back part of their throat, than in their cervix. And so while it's, I think, amazing and that the public health community has made so much progress preventing cervical cancers through screening and early detection. We haven't had that same benefit for head and neck yet. So actually, it's much more common now that people get human papillomavirus-related cancer in their throat than cervical cancer across the U.S. Well, and here in the Southeast, this seems to be sort of a focal point for this growing epidemic of HPV and head and neck cancers related to HPV. Can you tell me about what's happening here in South Carolina? Yeah, so I think South Carolina in some sense is a little behind, but catching up relative to the rest of the country. For a long time, we thought it made sense to us that the vaccines that can be given to prevent cervical cancer and anal genital warts and anal cancers caused by human papillomavirus, it seems like they should have also been able to prevent head and neck cancer due to human papillomavirus. And then in 2019, the FDA agreed and granted an indication to Merck for Gardasil, their nine-valent human papillomavirus vaccine for the prevention of head and neck cancer. And so now people ages 9 to 14, both males and females, boys and girls ages 9 to 14, can get two doses of Gardasil. And we think that that will help prevent HPV-related head and neck cancer. It's also approved for males and females all the way up to the age of 45 for three doses. So there's been a, a renewed emphasis within our professional community to make sure that messages out there that HPV causes head neck cancer. This is very common, in fact, more common than cervical cancer. And it's a potentially a preventable cancer through vaccines that can be given in early childhood and, and on to even early adulthood. You know, despite what we know about why human papillomaviruses cause head and neck cancer and how we can prevent it, there's a lot that we don't know yet. We think most of the infections happen many, many years before the cancer. So if someone shows up with cancer in their 40s, their 50s, it doesn't mean that they had human papillomavirus infection then. The infection probably happened far, far sooner. And there's just a very long period between the initial infection and when the cancer develops. But we don't know why some people go on to develop cancer and some people don't. The infection is very, very common inside the mouth from human papillomavirus. It generally has no symptoms. Actually, I'd say it always has no symptoms. So people are really never aware that they have it, um, but it can be detected with a swab inside the cheek. So I think we're moving towards spaces where we hope that we can not only prevent human papillomavirus-related cancer in the future by vaccinating the next generation, but also move to methods of early detection so that cancers can be caught at a really early stage or even to a screening program, which we currently don't have yet. What is the gold standard for early detection and screening? Screening has really revolutionized cancer outcomes in the sense that it's given many cancers, breast, colon, recently lung, uh, a chance to get cancers caught at an 
earlier stage when they're more localized and more treatable and outcomes are better. Sadly, we don't have any screening tests that are recommended for head and neck cancer. Part of this is because the head and neck cancer is not common enough to make it a worthwhile public health screening initiative. And part of it is because we don't have the right tests yet. So that doesn't mean that there's nothing that can be done. Often dentists and the dental community are a fantastic source of early detection. And so while there's not a official recommendation from the US PSTF to go get a dental exam to prevent head and neck cancer, when people do get routine dental evaluations, the dental providers often will notice um, abnormalities inside the mouth that may be cancer caught at a very early stage. So I think we are hopeful for the future that we can develop a screening program. But for now, the, the best that we recommend is that people regularly check in with their dentists and that when they do dentists perform an examination to see if there's anything that might be an early cancer inside the mouth. You mentioned before that white men seem to be the ones that are getting this cancer most often, but Black men, Black Americans in general, seem to have the worst outcomes with head and neck cancer. Can you tell me about that? This answer, I think, is multifactorial. One of the major things that we have noticed about the human papillomavirus related head and neck cancer is that the outcomes are much, much, much better. So historically, patients with tobacco and alcohol-related head and neck cancer, maybe only 50% or less would be alive at five years, whereas with human papillomavirus related head and neck cancer, upwards of 95% are alive at five years. So the survival is much, much, much better. The HPV-related head and neck cancers disproportionately seem to affect white males as opposed to black males for reasons we don't understand. So part of it is that African-Americans are more likely to get the more aggressive form of head and neck cancer caused by tobacco and alcohol and less likely to get the less lethal form that's caused by human papillomavirus. There are also some things that we think potentially about the underlying biology of the tumors that may be different amongst different racial subgroups and how their bodies respond to treatments. And then um, we certainly know that access to care and timely care across the cancer care continuum, so getting in for initial treatment all the way through the combinations of surgery and radiation and chemotherapy. Certain groups don't get the timely care that other groups do due to lack of access maybe potentially to insurance or other barriers to care. And as a result of that, disproportionately worse outcomes. And so this is an area of research we spend a lot of time thinking about at MUSC and are working on trying to understand more how the care delivery system fails African-American patients with head and neck cancer and how we can help improve timely care delivery to help improve the very disparate outcomes. And they're very real. So for the past 20 years, we've seen that African-Americans are approximately 50% more likely to die of their head and neck cancer compared to white patients. And this is even after adjusting for a number of other things that could potentially explain the differences. So we haven't made any progress in this very stark racial difference. And of the many cancers that have well-documented racial differences, and survival between white and black patients, head and neck cancer is probably the second strongest difference. So it's, I think, something we're aware of as a field. And we're, we're, I think we're moving within the last really five or so years to documenting and describing the problem to really understanding at a mechanistic level why this is happening and the many different parts that are related to the underlying biology of the tumor and the immune system. And then also, I think, the structures and processes of cancer care delivery and how different social determinants of health and social needs may impact different communities. Walk me through the treatment. Once somebody is diagnosed, what treatment is given for the best outcomes? So treatment depends a little bit on where the cancer is located and what stage the cancer is. Generally, we have three sort of major tools in our armamentarium surgery, radiation, and systemic therapy. So those may be things like chemotherapy or immunotherapy. For localized or early stage cancers, so stage one or stage two, we'll often recommend either surgery or radiation, but just one one type of treatment. And that's the best when people can only have one type of treatment. For more advanced cancers, so stage three or stage four, which are still curable for the most part, then we recommend combinations of, of treatments. That may be radiation and chemotherapy together, and then surgery afterwards if the radiation and chemo don't make the cancer go all the way 
away, or maybe surgery first, followed by radiation and chemotherapy afterwards. So we sort of mix up the combinations of sequences of those three tools. And we're still learning how to use immunotherapy. It's really revolutionized cancer care within the past five years, and it's still finding its place within head and neck cancer for ways in which it might be able to improve outcomes and decrease the toxicity of treatment. Sometimes we're sort of equivalent between whether surgery is the best option or radiation is the best option, except for cancers that are in the front part of the mouth, really close to the jawbone. And we think that surgery is a better option there because radiation can lead to some long-term damage to the jawbone and potentially worse cancer outcomes. But radiation is a very important part of the treatment modality. And I think we're blessed to have a very multidisciplinary and collaborative team of oncology providers here for surgery, radiation, and medical oncology to make sure each person gets the right treatment. And MUSC Health and the Hollings Cancer Center really offers this holistic approach where it's from the beginning to the end. Like you mentioned, if you're dealing with some common issues after treatment, you have specialists in place to help people. Just walk me through the experience at MUSC Health and how you're able to help patients get through the treatment stage and the survivorship as well. Yeah, I think this the concept that there is a very large team starts really right up front. So that's not until the end of treatment when we help on the backside, but really from the very beginning to have patients have, I think, the best outcomes in terms of being alive and being cancer-free and having the quality of life that they want. There's many, many providers involved. And like you mentioned, this is because the cancers occur in such, I think, cosmetically and functionally critical areas. So in addition to surgeons and radiation oncologists and medical oncologists, we work very closely with our dental colleagues. So the dental oncologists and oral surgeons who are involved in maintaining oral health for our patients who either have teeth or need teeth replaced as part of treatment. We work very closely with a speech language pathologist. And so they work with patients before treatment, during treatment, and after treatment to help optimize speaking and swallowing function. Our patients will work with physical therapists and occupational therapists to help get strength back and range of motion back as part of treatment that they may go through. One of the side effects that patients will often encounter is lymphedema. So um, fluid that sort of doesn't drain from the head back towards the body the way it needs to because of either combinations of surgery, radiation therapy. And so um, I think both speech therapists and physical and occupational therapists can help teach patients massage to help reroute the fluid or get them compressive masks. In addition, I think because treatment involves so many different types of providers, there's a very large support team, I think, involved in coordinating care. So nurse navigators and referral coordinators to help make sure that patients get so many different appointments scheduled with all the right patients really along the continuum. And it's very hard, you know, patients travel from a great distance to have all these appointments. And so we do our best here, I think, to make sure that there's a very patient-centered referral and scheduling process in a way that's not overwhelming because this is a lot of appointments, even when patients are healthy and in this situation, they're dealing with really a devastating cancer. Sometimes they come without caregivers or support. So it's it's a lot for them to go through. And then I, I think I would also add in the list of providers that I didn't cover before. We work very closely with our colleagues in behavioral medicine in the cancer center. And so patients with head and neck cancer have very high rates of substance abuse and substance dependence in the beginning. So alcohol and tobacco being common things. And because treatment is so toxic and devastating, depression, anxiety, concerns about body image, so body image-related distress, and then suicide are all very real concerns among our patient population. And so so cancer survivors, we know, um, generally have twice the rate of suicide compared to the general population. And head neck cancer survivors compared to other survivors of cancer, they have twice the risk of suicide. So they're really a very uniquely vulnerable population to, I think, mental health concerns. Tell me about some of the cutting-edge ways that MUSC Health is able to tackle head and neck cancer, especially in younger patients, and what you're seeing and what you're doing right now. I think with our multidisciplinary team, we, along with many other places around the country, have recognized that there are really two two major problems to solve in the field. One is for patients with HPV-related head and neck cancer, so those due to human papillomavirus where the patients are younger and the outcomes are really, really good. Potentially, treatment doesn't need to be as toxic to still achieve that very high cure rate. And so there's many different strategies that we're studying here 
that may help be able to deliver treatment that cures patients of their head and neck cancer, but doesn't leave them with some of the long-term side effects related to all the toxic treatments. And so sometimes this may be trying to figure out the right way to use newer surgical approaches like robotic, we call it transoral robotic surgery or TORS, which was, allows for a much more minimally invasive and less morbid, less harmful way to treat cancers inside the back part of the throat, which are otherwise very hard to access with historical techniques. I think we're also part of a number of important clinical trials looking at new radiation or chemotherapy or immunotherapy options that may be less toxic and harmful to patients than historical regimens. And so these are, I think, are very exciting things that we hope to be able to maintain that very high cure rate and then not have as much toxicity. On the flip side, I think we're also looking at ways to intensify treatment for the group of patients with tobacco and alcohol-related head and neck cancer, where that survival is really poor. And so in there, we're looking for potentially new ways to add on things like immunotherapy, either before treatment or after treatment in a way that we hope will help teach the immune system to recognize and attack the cancer so that it's not coming back the way we we frequently see it doing. And then I think in the survivorship period, you know, one of the major concerns for our patients is there is a relatively high rate of cancer coming back again. And so I think developing new ways to detect cancer coming back again early and in a way that doesn't cause too much stress to them is really important. And so one of the radiation oncologists here, actually Dr. Chera, helped develop a blood test that can detect circulating DNA from human papillomavirus and potentially catch patients earlier who have may have cancer coming back and allow for treatment that otherwise wouldn't happen. So I think those are, I think, many of the ways, and, and many of this happens in the context of clinical trials. That's probably, I think, what's special about getting care at Hollings, which is the only NCI-designated cancer center in South Carolina, is we really have a robust clinical trial portfolio that offers the most cutting-edge treatments for the many different kinds of head and neck cancer that we talked about. And so some of them involve new quality-of-life surgical approaches that may minimize the toxicity of surgery, sort of new ways of delivering radiation or pairing it with new chemo or immunotherapy options. And then really in the in the supportive care and survivorship phase two, I think we have a lot of interesting trials that help patients and caregivers get back to the quality of life that is meaningful to them after they've been through such a such a treatment. So that's really something that we is critical to our mission here. That's why we're all at MUSC and Hollings in a way we hope that not only improves the outcomes for patients in South Carolina, but contributes something meaningful to the biomedical community that can improve outcomes nationally and internationally for these types of patients. What do you do to optimize your health and live well? My wife and I have found an exercise group that meets from six to seven in the morning. It's called The Outsiders, and they do different group exercise activities around the peninsula. And I think the level of physical activity and social and camaraderie aspect that goes with it is perfect for us. And so it's something, it's just a great way to start the day and a, a key part, I think, of being active and moving around. Thank you so much, Dr. Evan Grayboys, for coming on the show. It was such a joy, and thanks for the chance to share about head and neck cancer with your audience. For more information on this podcast, check out advance.musehealth.org.